Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. Uh, it's a beautiful day here in the district. The sun up. And we have Mr. Everett Dobrinsky with us this morning. Good morning, Everett. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Thank you for being on. And what part of the world are you in this morning? Well, I'm on my, on my, in my farmyard. I'm in my office in northwestern North Dakota. And it is uh, 28 degrees right now. Okay, well, I'm I'm glad I'm not there. Okay, okay. And and uh, have you started farming now? And what do you farm? Yes, our our farm. Actually, uh, my wife and I are now retired, and our son is farming. And uh, we we started putting uh, fertilizer on a couple of days ago, and we're still still doing that. It'll be it'll probably be another. Uh, 10 days, maybe a week, 10 days before we pl- start planting any of our spring crops. And what will you plant? Uh, canola, spring wheat, or we call it hard wheat. Uh, and that's the, that's the type of wheat that is used for bread. And we will be planting some soybeans, some flax, some peas, which are the variety that are used in split pea soup. And uh, depending on the markets, you know, maybe uh, maybe some lentils. You know, depending on, I'm not exactly sure what his plans are this year. So that's your son that is doing the, he'll, he's deciding what what he will plant. Yeah, he makes all the decisions now. So all, all my wife and I do is we, uh, we're here and we live on the farm. And so when he needs a little help, we're, we're glad to lend a hand. Okay. So how long have you been farming? Yeah, well, my wife and I started farming in 1970. And that was our first crop. And we've been uh, been retired now for a couple of years, but uh, we've had we've had a good run. We've enjoyed it. Uh, we've we've had a good partnership, and uh, you know, just, just really proud to be part of that farming community. So I don't know if I have my math right, but it looks like that's forty eight years. That sounds about right. Twenty eighteen. Yep. Okay. And I want to first congratulate you for being chosen for the Cooperative Hall of Fame, which are the heroes of the cooperative world. And how long have you been in this co-op world? Well, and thank you for that. And and uh, and I think it's a great honor to be to be named to be inducted to the Cooperative Hall of Fame. It's a huge honor, and that honor is spread out through all of the cooperatives. Really, that that uh, any of us individuals are are you know fortunate enough to be a part of, because one person doesn't doesn't do it, but the community makes a difference. And working cooperatively, it's a, it's it's really wonderful to see what can be done. And uh, I've been involved in uh, in cooperatives really all my life. My my uh, my father before me uh, was involved in cooperatives, and my grandfather before him. So it's it's something that's been part of our life uh, for, well, all of my life, I, I guess I could say. <laughs> okay. Well, I kind of got, what is it like to grow up? See, I didn't understand or didn't even hear about co-ops until I was around 50, 50, 55. So what is it like to grow up? What are the kinds of things that you learn in this co-op world? As yeah, well, you know. Especially in the farming community, and especially up here in the Upper Midwest, the cooperatives were a lot of them were formed, you know, in the late twenties, uh, in the thirties, and even into the forties. And I'm saying nineteen twenties, thirties, and forties here. And uh, it was really it was they were formed to to serve a need. Uh, there was a need uh, during the twenties, for example, when when the farming was revolutionized by the introduction of the uh, gasoline powered tractor. That really changed. It really changed the landscape, and it changed 
the needs of farmers. They need to, needed to have gasoline and oil and grease, lubricants, and so on and so on. And and they they just formed cooperatives to provide that service. Sometimes that was because the service wasn't there. Sometimes it's because they just needed there just needed to be some competition because not not all the times the farmers felt like they were being treated fairly. They also formed the cooperatives to market their products, and that way, um, you know, they didn't have to try to find an end user for any of their uh, any of their commodities, but they marketed them through their marketing cooperatives and. And it just seems like they found that uh, that worked well, that model worked well, and that's how they got electricity to the farms, and that's how they got uh, telephones and later uh, communications to the farms by forming cooperatives bringing it because, you know, it was so so sparsely populated that it didn't look like a huge profit margin for any any investor-owned utility to come. And so the farmers got together and formed a cooperative and worked in partnership with the federal government at that time. It was called the REA, uh, Rural Electric Administration, that provided not only technical support, but also very, very low interest loans. And those loans at that time were 2%, and that enabled that enabled the uh, capital uh, to be there for, for these cooperatives to build the lines and, and to bring the, the electricity and the, the telephones uh, out to the farmers. So, do you know how old you were, or do you remember the electricity, if you will, being turned on? Yeah, that's that's uh, interesting. I was I was actually you know six seven years old when electricity was brought to our farm. Now it took a while. I mean, some of these electric cooperatives were actually formed in the, in like 1935 is when the REA Act uh, was enabled, but it took a while, and it was into the late 40s. And early fifties, when it when it got to my area in North Dakota, some areas were sooner, some areas got it later. But I was probably uh, you know six, seven, eight years old, something like that. And I don't necessarily remember the day the, that the lights got turned on because I was probably just a little too young to remember that. But I remember going and helping my dad with what we call the chores. And what that meant was he had a very very small dairy. He, he milked thirteen uh, cows by hand. And we would go out after, we called it supper. Most people nowadays call that dinner, but we had supper on the farm. And then we'd go out and do the chores. And we'd go down to the barn. And and in the wintertime, of course, by this time, it was pitch dark. And we'd go down to the barn, and he always insisted that he opened the door first. And he opened the door, he reached around the corner, and he would hit the light switch and turn the lights on, and he would have a big smile coming across his face. Because to him, that was just awesome, turning that switch and having electricity light up his barn. And so he didn't have to didn't have to carry the kerosene lantern anymore, didn't have to worry about knocking it over and starting the barn on fire. Uh, it was uh, it really changed his life. And I can I can remember to this day that smile that would come across his face whenever he'd flip that light switch. Of course, now we take all that for granted and we expect not only the lights to come on when we flip the switch, but we expect it never to flicker because we don't want to have to reset all of our clocks and timers and computers and everything else. But uh, it was uh, it was a very, very interesting need, and that got served by the cooperatives. So the, the cooperatives sort of filled in to give you what you needed, um, and were perhaps the capitalistic, the investors would not because you said it was sparsely populated, and they just wouldn't make the money, so they couldn't do it. The government came in and helped by providing low-interest loans to provide the capital needed because you still need the capital. Co-ops need capital. Uh, capitalist organizations need capital. And so you got low-interest loans. Now, do you have any sense whether these co-ops paid these loans back or did they default? Or Do you have any sense of that? Yes, that's a, that's a very good point, and, and uh, that's exactly right, because the capital incentive just would not have been there for investor owns to come. It was just too big of a risk, and it didn't look like a big enough payback. As it turned out, the risk wasn't that big because not a single one of these loans ever went bad. They were all repaid, and, of course, now the rural electrics are taking out loans, as again, as they expand and, and bring better and better service. But they have a very, very, very high rate of, uh, of being paid back and uh, – Zero foreclosure. There's there's maybe been a one or two instances throughout the whole history of 
Now, by the way, that's administered through it's called the RUS, Rural Utilities Services, because it includes not only the electric, but it includes some water programs. It also includes, you know, communications and, and some of those things. But without without the, the partnership of the federal government to begin with, it would have been hard, very, very hard, probably next to impossible for, for the electrification to have even happened. And now, as it turns out, these cooperatives are, are quite profitable. They make sure they they make sure they provide a margin so that they can, you know, you know, make sure that their uh, balance sheet looks well enough to be to be uh, banked so that the, the bankers will will loan to them and and they and they make enough of a margin to return some of that money left over at the end of the year gets returned to the members in the form of patronage and so it's it's actually working out win win for everyone and really for the whole country. So you've just gone into the structure of a co-op, and for anybody out there that haven't been listening to this program, you have members in a co-op, and the first principle of co-op is that membership is open to anybody. That doesn't depend on race or religion or political affiliation, gender, none of those things. It's just one, and the second is democracy, one member, one vote. So it's open to anybody, and then those members elect a board of directors, and that board of directors set policies and procedures. And in this process, the members also, with the board, would talk about what happens to profit. And that profit could be a dividend or patronage, is what it's called in the cooperative world, but in some ways it's a return on whatever the membership fee was that a, the co-op member had to pay to join the the. Um, and I think that's the third principle is economic participation. It's something to get in, some money you put in as a membership fee, and when and if there's a profit. And in most cases, there is a profit uh, because people work together. Okay, that's that whole structure, which causes to work really, really well. Uh, that's been the history. From everything I've heard, uh, Everett, everything I've heard, I've been on this program now six and a half years, talking to all sectors of co-ops, is they normally work. There's a high percentage of co-ops that really, really work and work well, and people get a, a higher return or a higher wage, if you will, being in a co-op. Has that been your experience? You've been in this all your life. I've only been in it 20-some years, but has that been your experience? Yes, that has been my experience. In fact, I have served on several of these cooperative boards, the Rural Electric Board being one of them, and yeah, that is true. The board of directors really are the representatives of the owners, the members are the owners. And that's a very, very important concept. And so, yes, you sometimes have to balance the needs of an owner with the needs of a member. You know, I guess if you if you were strictly balanced, uh, because of being a member, you, you could just as well give the electricity free, right? Well, that wouldn't work very well for the owner. And so you balance all that. You, you try to keep the rates as low as you can, but yet you need to have a viable company. Because if your cooperative Everett, isn't viable, it's not going to be there to serve that member. And we've, so. we've got to take our first break, and we'll come back and talk about this uh, on the other side of the break. Um, everybody out there, we're talking to Mr. Everett Dobrinsky, and he's been in the co-op all of his life. Uh, we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. everybody this is Vernon Oaks and the program is everything cooperative we talk about this this cooperative world we're particularly talking about the cooperative world um, in light of COVID-19 which we'll get to at, later on in this program and we're talking to Mr. Everett Dobrinsky uh, up in the north corner of North Dakota where it's 26 degrees or something this morning and uh, Everett, you'd said your father and your grandfather are in farming, and now you and your son. So that's four generations uh, into this farming business up there. And you've been in co-ops all of your life, and you've been farm. You farm for forty-eight years, and you still get out there 
on the plow, or do you all use a pick and shovel these days? <laughs> well, actually, uh, we're no-till, and so we don't we don't have a plow anymore, and uh, very little very little manual labor, to tell you the truth. We we uh, spread fertilizer, and we plant directly into last year's residue, and you know we harvest harvest that, uh, and then do the cycle again next year. Okay, so when, when we took the break, you were talking about the sort of the benefits of a co-op, and uh, there's a lady named uh, Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard who wrote a book called Collective Carriage. She was looking at African Americans in this co-op world, and she said when she first started writing that book, and it took her 15 years to research and write it, she was told that African Americans weren't involved in co-ops, and she found out through this book that they really, really are. And how did your family up in the northern part of the U.S. get into co-ops? Because, because let me just say this, because the African-Americans brought it over from Africa. It was sort of mutual aid societies, borough societies, even during slavery. People would, would gather, pull their resources together so they could get things done. So how, how, did, how did you all get into this? How did your grandfather, father... Yeah, I think I think what, during that era, and this we're talking about in the in the you know, in the 1920s, he homesteaded here in 1911, and I think as as the mechanization occurred, and as they they found there was a need for a better marketing, they started forming cooperatives. At about that time, the North Dakota Farmers Union got to be pretty prevalent as a as a farm organization in the state, and they very very much helped promote cooperatives. And so when the need was 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 found, you know they would get they would get field men out from uh, from the from the farmers union or from from other established cooperatives and help locals establish establish a cooperative company. And I don't think it was very strange for them to do that because the people here at that time were largely either immigrants themselves or maybe first generation from immigrants. And most of them came from Northern Europe, and they, they they had already understood the concept of cooperatives. So it wasn't like it wasn't like it was a brand new idea to them. And so I think maybe that's probably why uh, it was it was just kind of the chosen method of of forming uh, business models. You know, they they just kind of chose to be cooperatives. It worked it worked well. They were used to helping each other out anyway as neighbors. And cooperating that way, and so it just it just made sense for them. Helping each other, uh, that, um, it gets me to the principle, the values of co-opting. Um, I like the ethical values of co-ops. That's honesty, integrity, openness. Oh, honesty, transparent, transparency. What am I getting here? Honesty, openness. Um, integrity kind of thing, and caring for each other, caring for others. Uh, and that's sort of what farmers have done, uh, no matter where they are. They help each other. Raise a, raise a farm. I mean, yeah, raise a, raise a barn, as an example. So farmers come together and help each other. Okay, so they brought that from Northern Europe. Uh, you, your grandfather, your, your father, now you, and you pass it on to your son. And they, what about grandchildren? Are they in the yeah. farming world? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Our, we we just have the one son. We have one daughter, and our daughter is a registered nurse and lives in Egan, Minnesota, with her family, her husband Jason and uh, Zachary and Emily, and they're both um, pretty much home right now because of you know they're college kids, but because of the of the situation and they're they're taking their classes online and they're actually kind of back home now. Although I guess our grandson has went back to South Dakota to kind of get reorganized so he can leave for the semester. But at any rate, um, an interesting thing is is that uh, Zach is interested in farming. Even though he didn't grow up on a farm, uh, he, he got, he's very interested in farming. I think he just always liked to come to Grandpa and Grandma's, you know, as a, as a child. And he's actually uh, at South Dakota State University majoring in precision agriculture. And during the uh, summer months, he comes and works for his uncle, our son Darren, and he, so now he's getting practical experience on the farm, which I think is helping him with his degree as well. Because now it's not just all out of the book, but he's actually seeing some application of some of these 
have the two granddaughters, uh, one from each child, are, and both of those girls are exceptionally bright, uh, exceptionally talented, but neither one of them are interested in farming. Okay. And I kept telling them, you know, they're so smart and talented, they could be farmers. They're, they've got enough, you know, to do that, but they both want to be medical doctors. And so I guess we'll, we'll just let that go. Well, you're talking about your daughter as an essential worker, as a nurse, a registered nurse at that, and her her daughter wanting to be a a doctor, and your son's daughter wanting to be a doctor, so they're real essential workers. I just uh, hope, and this is central, one of the things that this coronavirus has shown us, and these essential workers don't get paid enough. They're not taken care of enough, whether it's the PPEs or salaries. And as a society, I think we're going to have to do something different. But that's a whole nother conversation. Um, I, I would sure, surely like to, to chime in on that and, and just okay. give a great big shout out and a thank you for all of those people that are putting themselves in in danger. And in some cases, you're right. I don't think they they necessarily have all the all the uh, protective equipment they should have, and so on and so on. Uh, so anyway, it. Uh, you know, it's it's just I'm I'm really I'm really glad that that both of our daughters, Isabella, uh, and her her mother Carissa, they've always they've both been always willing to help. Carissa is a school teacher and always helping with special needs kids and so on. And Isabella wants to be a doctor like her other grandfather. And I'm just so proud of so proud of all of them that. Uh, and I I just. It just it's just kind of a overwhelming feeling thinking about all these people out there on the front lines putting their own health at risk because they've because they've taken an oath to help and it's uh it's it's pretty amazing so thanks for that opportunity to say that yeah i think the seven o'clock shout out to uh the people on the front line the nurses and the doctors and the uh, ems people the it's wonderful and i uh, don't want to take from that and at the same time we've got to protect them as a society, and make sure that they can live a decent wage, a de- decent living, and which is one of the reasons I like co-ops. I'm 72, and I went to school and got an MBA and a master's in math, and I did not hear about and did not study about co-ops in any of that formal education. 20 years of going to school, I did not hear about cooperatives, and this is the mechanism I can see where everyday people whether they're nurses or farmers or, I don't know, taxi cab drivers. Everyday people can get into a co-op and make a decent living and also get a share in that profit. So that's one of the main reasons that I like co-ops. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And, you know, one of the one of the cooperative principles is education. And in Number my early childhood, I was, I was educated. We went to, uh, during the months, we would go every once a month to, to co-op. You might say co-op class. It was sponsored by the North Dakota Farmers Union, but we'd learn about cooperatives from an early, early age on. And now at, uh, and we've had this in place for quite a while, but at North Dakota State University, there's a Quentin Burdick Center for Cooperatives, and they teach classes on cooperatives and and uh, actually uh, some fairly advanced classes. And so, and, and I know there are many, many land-grant colleges throughout the country that do the same thing. And and that's that's really great because it's not just agricultural cooperatives that they'll talk about, but they'll talk about, you know, the consumer cooperatives, and credit unions, and housing cooperatives, and food cooperatives, and there's just a on and on and on. You mentioned the taxi cab drivers, and I know that in, uh, or at least it used to be true in Washington D.C., there was a co-op that dispatched cab drivers. The, the cab drivers were part of this co-op, and it was just to mm-hmm. me that just made a lot of sense. Yep. Yep, yep. And uh, just real quickly, there, there are um, four types of co-ops, and you've mentioned several of them. Um, and the farmers use, the, which you've already talked about, purchasing co-ops and marketing co-ops. As farmers get together and they buy things that they need, and they can normally have a company that helps them to buy it. They can get uh, what they need at a lower price and a better quality working through this company and something and that company makes money too and then they have a marketing co-op which everybody sends their products to and they sometimes are called producer co-ops marketing or producer co-ops because they add value to like they take milk and make cheese or uh, different kinds of things yogurt or whatever and then they sell them to markets so in north dakota 
your product could end up in California or New York going to this marketing co-op where you couldn't do it as an individual farmer. You could not reach all of those different markets and add that value. So it gives the farmer a lot. And the other two is uh, worker co-ops, and that's it. If the employees own the co-op, so a food co-op could be a worker co-op, but most of them are the other type, which is a consumer co-op. And that's when the, the people that use the products or services own the business, own and control the business. And you have the, the credit unions and the housing co-ops, um, REI, which is here. So we're going to take our second break, and I want to come back and, and hear more about your lifelong journey in the cooperative world. We'll be right back. News Talk Station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And we're talking to Mr. Everett Dubrinsky, uh, who's a farmer. Well, first, he was a husband and a father, and now a grandfather. He's a farmer, um, he's a businessman, he's a leader, and uh, he has been. He's been selected to be in the Cooperative Hall of Fame, which is going to be, this year is going to be in October uh, because of the coronavirus. Um, this this is going to be October the 8th. Uh, ever, that's one day after my birthday, October the 7th, and October is Cooperative Month, so they're going to have the Cooperative Hall of Fame in October month this year, as opposed to like now. I think it was this month it was going to be, or next month, but... Uh, and I'm looking forward to meeting you, but I wanted to talk a little bit about your your history, your your career in this co-op world. So I got your grandfather and your father were doing this in the farming. And um, were, when did you first started uh, working with this co-ops? Okay, well, thank you. And by the way, when we meet uh, face-to-face in October, we'll both be exactly the same age for a couple more months, then I'll turn and be one year older than you again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My my first cooperative board that I sat on, like I say, I was always involved and I always would, you know, be at the annual meetings of all the different cooperatives that we participated in here at the farm. But uh, I first got elected to a board of directors in 1985. And that was the Brendry Electric Cooperative Board. And that was the uh, distribution cooperative that brought electricity to the farm. And from there, I was elected to the uh, Central Power Electric, which was kind of a uh, wholesale uh, generating and transmission uh, cooperative that provided the, the extra power, you might say, to Verendry Electric. They also, Verendry also had a, an allocation from Western Area Power Administration, in other words, hydroelectric, uh, from a government-sponsored uh, dam on the Missouri River. But um, we still had to buy, you know, uh, make power or produce power and then and so we had a, a wholesaler to do that and that was also a cooperative and then i was elected to the uh, st paul bank for cooperatives and that that was part of the farm credit system and i wanted to talk some about the farm credit system because it's been a very very important part of my life because when i first started farming in in 1970 i i did get a loan of 500 dollars from my dad but my next loan was from farm credit and Farm Credit has been with me uh, the rest of my career and, and uh, been a very, very important part of our life. And the St. Paul Bank for Cooperatives was, was, was uh, formed through an act of Congress in 1935 or 33, I forget exactly when, but it was uh, so that there would be capital available for agricultural cooperatives. And that act was amended uh, several times, and now uh, the co-op banks in fact, they've all merged. St. Paul Bank and all the other district banks merged into a bank called CoBank, which I also served on the board of uh, for many years. I guess I served on that board for almost 20 years. And so I've been involved with the banking side of pro- providing capital to cooperatives throughout the country. And it's also expanded so that uh, it doesn't have to be agricultural cooperatives, but they also have the authority to lend to rural infrastructure. And so rural electrics, and rural communications and rural water systems, and also farm credit associations. 
And so CoBank wholesales to different farm credit associations throughout the country. And there are other banks, uh, farm credit banks as well, that that wholesale to farm credit associations so that every part of the United States is covered uh, by a, by an association. So a farmer can, can borrow from an association, then the association will borrow from its district bank. But it's but they are all set up as cooperatives, and so it's it's a very very important uh, important part of the economy in rural America. Without without the farm credit system, which is by the way a GSE, and and it has a regulator uh, that is, and the regulator is is got is governed by three people that are appointed directly by the president of the United States. So so you know that it's pretty it's pretty well regulated. And I think that makes it uh, safer and sounder for the investors in the farm credit bonds that are sold on Wall Street. So that, that's kind of my career goes from from the rural electric to another to a, to a wholesale rural electric, or and then also to the bank for cooperatives at St. Paul to start with. Then we merged into CoBank, and I've been on the CoBank board since 1999. Retired just last December, and so that's that's kind of been my. Uh, been my career and it's been just I just felt fortunate because uh, not only do you feel like maybe you can maybe give a little something back uh, through this service but you meet the nicest and the best people in the country I've, I've had made so many friends across the country and and they're mostly mostly from the rural communities that we serve and and it's just been it's just been fantastic and so I've, I've been very honored and I feel very appreciative of all So Everett, I've gotten in talking to you that you spent time with your wife and your family. So you are a family man. I got that, and probably got that from your grandfather and father, and passed it on to your son. So you got you spending time there. You are farming, but you are spending all of this time on all of these different boards, and so you are a leader in all of these different companies. It's kind of like, when did you have time to farm between well, this being is, a family this, man? I'm, and I'm a, glad you, you brought that up because <laughs> a very, very important part of why I was able to do all this is because of our family. Everybody, everybody uh, agreed this was this was something that needed to be done. It was a it was a noble noble enough cause. They were willing to dip in, and they worked really, really hard while I was gone. And that included that included our son and daughter who really pitched in with the farm work, and you know. If they weren't away at college, they were at home on the farm helping, and and it's just been they've been willing to uh, willing to do that. Like I say, Darren has now taken over uh, the farm. He had his own farm as well. He joined the two farms, and uh, I'm so proud of him because he's also on a cooperative board, and and uh, he's on the Sun Prairie Grain Marketing Cooperative, and it it's it's actually a part of the CHS system. And uh, guess what? CHS is a very, very important member of of CoBank, and so it's all it all gets tied together, and and we're so so we're you know we're just glad that we were able to do it. The, the family really all pitched in, and that certainly includes my wife Peggy, and and our two children. And while my dad was around, he pitched in as well. You know, it was uh, and my and my mother for that matter too. So there was always someone willing to help. So it was always it always made it a lot easier to be gone. So what I what I'm getting from you is there this togetherness, there this uh, caring for others. This not not <clears throat> one of the problems I had with the capitalist society, and I'm a capitalist. I went to get an MBA to learn how to make money. Um, but what I like about the cooperative world, it is this sense of togetherness. We're working together for the good of the group and making decisions within a co-op that's good for the group. And it starts with family uh, working together. And that's it, it, all kinds of different cultures, whether it's back to the tribes where everybody had their own individual things to do. And I think this is the heart of being human is this togetherness. Um, and you just described it extremely well. You couldn't have been on these other boards and couldn't have done all of these things, which is helping the 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 communities you live in and the communities, the different communities in the U.S. and the U.S. and in the world. So you're doing work that helps everybody, and that's just together the spirit. I got it. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank thank you. And, and uh, you know, community, of course, is one of the cooperative principles, the caring for community. And 
I feel very, 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 very proud the fact that many of the cooperatives that I've been associated with take that very, very seriously. You know, the rural electrics have a have a program called Operation Roundup. And what that does is that the people, the members, have an option every month. Uh, if they get an electric bill for $198.23, they'll round it up to $199. And if you take that, you know, say an average of $0.50 cents a month, then you might say uh, it's, it's just... Uh, if you multiply that times the number of members, you, you build up a pretty good fund, and they use that money to help out the community. Maybe the ambulances, maybe the fire departments you know, in, in the area, whatever, maybe, maybe something with the schools. But that's, that's a very, very important program, and it's, it's voluntary. You don't have to do that, but you have a chance to sign up for that. And, and at CoBank, we have uh, a program called Sharing Success. And so we take we like to uh, there and I, I'm no longer on that board and I can't speak for Cobank anymore. But at the time I was on that board, they tried to dedicate a certain percentage of their of their profits of their margins for the year and use it for charitable endeavors, uh, grants and so so forth that will help the communities. And they did that in such a way they made matching grants from the thousands of cooperatives and businesses that borrow from Cobank. Each had a chance to, you know, name a name a certain charity they wanted it to go to, whether it was their local ambulance or fire department or whatever it was, and that would be matched by CoBank, and that's turned out to be a huge success because who better knows, you know, what the needs are than the local cooperatives, and yet they're getting help from the regional or the national, in this case, bank. Uh, it's just, it's just a great program, and so it's all part of that caring for community, and that's a very important part of cooperatives. Well, you have lived it, and we, you keep talking about principles we've talked about. Let me, there are seven principles. Volunteer and open membership doesn't care about your background, who you are. Democratic member control, one member, one vote. Doesn't make any difference how much money you have or don't have. It's one member, one vote. Number three is member economic participation. You put some money in a membership fee, and the members decide when when they're their profit what to do with that money. And that might be that part of it is given to the society. To the well, part of it could be kept in the business to grow the business. Part of it could be given to the community, and part of it given back to the members in a dividend or patronage. And then the fourth one is autonomy and independence. No matter what, the co-op has to be in control and make the decisions. And number five is education, training, and information, which when I first learned about this ever, that was the main thing I liked about co-ops was that there's this training. Uh, um, I taught for 12 years, and my mother was a teacher, and training is extremely important to me, education. So it's in the core, in the DNA of a co-op. And then number six is cooperation among co-ops, and that's what you just talked about, all of these different co-ops working together, and in sometimes working together for the different co-ops, but also working together for the community, which is number seven, concern for the community. That's also in the DNA is what can we do for the community, and that's Perhaps the members will decide to plow back some of that profits to different communities, and you just described different ways that that's done, and that's phenomenal. Um, so I, I normally wait to this question to the end. Uh, are, did, did, have you liked what you have done in your career, in your life, and would you want it to change it in any kind of way? You know, it's been it's been a, another love of mine. I, if I didn't love the cooperatives and what the cooperatives are able to do for people, I, I don't expect I would have, uh, you know, shared that much of my time. But I absolutely loved it. I think the purpose was just, just fantastic, and it was and like I say, I've met such wonderful people and worked with such wonderful people. It's been well, well worth it. I wouldn't change a thing. I'd do it all over again in a heartbeat. Wow, that is awesome. So for anybody out there listening, if you really want to look at a career, you young people, you might want to look at co-ops. Uh, search them out. And this is why National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program, to give you information, because WOL says information is power. It's only power when you use it. So maybe you can use this information to go and find a co-op, get training about them, learn about them, either start one yourself or join one to either work with, work for, or buy from. 
because uh, I've been doing it six and a half years, Everett, and I've asked that question, do you like what you're doing? I get back, I love it. I wouldn't change it. And that, that makes life so, so great. We're going to take our final break, Everett. It's already <laughs> come due. And uh, like, I would like to come back and talk to you about this coronavirus and um, some of the kinds of things that we might, the cooperative world might be able to do to help with this, this coronavirus, both now and getting through it. And after we get through it, which may be 12 to 18 months when we get, um, you know, a, a vaccine for it. But we'll be right back. Um, please don't touch that down. Your news talk station. All right, we're getting back. We're talking to Everett Dobrinsky out of North Dakota. Um, Everett, I I got this COVID, this COVID-19. Um, the, one of the things that, that I keep hearing everybody talk about um, is that we have to work, in order to solve this, we have to work together. That's not going to get solved uh, with some people working on it and some people not working on it, but it's got to be State government is working with the federal governments, with you in North Dakota and me here in D.C., that we all must do our part to social distance and wash our hands and all of these things. And that looks like what co-ops are all about is this togetherness, uh, working together for the benefit of the good. Do you see that same kind of thing here? Yes, very much so. I think, you know, the, the concern for community is certainly a principle that just stands out. Uh, in this particular case, and there there's lots of things that can be done from, you know, some of it just maybe uh, maybe helping out helping out a, a cause or, or or making a donation or making uh, maybe maybe making some certain uh, equipment available, depending on you know the cooperative and depending on what they do. Um, one of the things that CoBank has done, actually before this was way before the COVID, but. Cobank is very interested in rural infrastructure, as as you know. We, uh, Cobank was able to lend to that arena, and especially broadband. And if you think, and then broadband. When I say broadband, I mean for rural areas here, because most of the metropolitan have a pretty good uh, broadband situation. But when you have broadband available in the rural areas, that also means that you can have telehealth available. And I would seems it just seems to me that telehealth could have a very very important part in fighting this particular uh, this particular virus outbreak. If people can if people can see their doctor on FaceTime, for example, uh, they're not risking infecting other people. They're not you know not risking getting infected or whatever. So it just seems like that's a very very uh, important thing. And and CoBank I know has worked tirelessly to to bring more and more broadband to rural America and through it tele, telehealth. In fact, they've part of that sharing success program that I talked about earlier has went to uh, regional and local rural hospitals to help set up programs of, of telehealth. And so that's, that's a couple of things that come to mind. There, there's a gentleman who was on the show uh, J. Philip Thompson, who was deputy mayor of New York, um, and he used to teach at MIT. <clears throat> and he said around MIT, um, they had a lot of co-ops, and research with, within co-op world was, was uh, got a lot of research done because the cooperators shared this cooperation among co-ops, this sixth principle. The cooperative shared information, they didn't sort of keep it as we were competitors. And so that uh, around MIT, a lot of professors worked with the co-ops to get to get the research done. And I was just wondering if there was something that between co-bank and farmers and researchers that we might be able to get into this world and help find a cure or help get PPEs or do something that might help to solve this problem. Any ideas on that? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not, 
I really don't have any solutions for this. Uh, Sarah Tyree, I hope you're listening because uh, this is a good question for you. Sarah is a, is in a she's just a remarkable employee of CoBank headquartered in D.C. and she does a lot of work with the tele telehealth grants and some of those things. And she would probably be able to. I hate to put her on the spot, but uh, <laughs> Sarah, if you're listening, this would be this would be something I think you could answer. Hopefully, there's something we can do together. Hopefully, there's there's you know certainly promoting the cooperation and you know you're right transparency is important there's no sense no sense keep if we learn something we need to share that's just mm-hmm. that's just a given and so that's that's about all i can help you with on that particular question i think well i may want to reach out to Sarah and get her on this program and talk about it um the other the um the so the other thing is on the other side of this on the when we get through this, whether we get a break in the summer with the heat, I'm not sure that's true anymore. That the heat will help to kill it off, uh, but or if it's 12 months from now when we get this, or 12 or 18 months when we get the vaccine. But on the other side, I was also wondering what what co-ops might be able to do, and this is just to put your thinking hat on, you've been in it longer than me in this co-op world, what might co-ops do to help bring the economy back? I mean, we're good at working together. We're good at solving problems. We're good at helping each other, um, making decisions that's best for the group and not the individual. So what might co-ops do to help the society? And I've got any ideas. Yeah, I think, I think, uh, and, and I think it's going to take a long time to get back to quote normal. Uh, if we ever do, I don't know. This could be a this could be a game changer, really. Uh, you know, I've never really lived through a real game changer. I mean, 2011 was uh, or 2001 was uh, was close. It changed it changed a lot of things. But this this I think is going to change. You know, it's just going to change people's behavior. I think even more and probably for a longer time. And some of that may be good. Some of it may not be so good. Um, but we got to figure out ways. We got to figure out ways to kind of lessen the burden on those that are the, the, those that are taking the hit, the biggest hits. We got to figure out, you know, if they're providing a, a service that we eventually going to need, we got to figure out a way to keep them going. And you know, maybe in that that would, could be true for some of our marketing supply cooperatives as well. That there's there's several of them throughout the count the country. They should probably get together, talk, talk, talk things through, maybe set up teleconferences, uh, things that we can do together, and, and uh, make sure the supply chain is there. You know, make sure that that we can uh, help each other out. I know there are cases. I've heard cases already here in North Dakota where there's there's some uh, there's a there's a fertilizer called anhydrous ammonia, which is a it's mostly nitrogen, but it's it's in such a it's the form is in such a way that it's a fairly delicate uh, material. It, it can be dangerous. It's, it's, it's a gas that's under pressure and formed and made into a liquid as long as the pressure's there. And it's, you know, it has to be handled very, very carefully. And yet it's a very, very economical fertilizer and, and a very uh, natural product, but it's just something that farmers rely on. And I've, mm-hmm. I've heard where there are semis of anhydrous ammonia stuck at the border between Saskatchewan and North Dakota and not able to get through, and farmers are finding that there that there's not enough, there's just not enough uh, anhydrous around, and so, so that's the border from Canada to the U.S. So and this is something that the cooperatives I think could work together and make sure if they got a little too much in one area, make sure they can direct it to another area, and so on and so forth. And again, it's just it's just that cooperation among cooperatives at work. But that's between Canada and the U.S. So this, the fertilizers in Canada are not being able to get across. Yes, that's, this is, and this is my understanding. Of course, I haven't been at the border to see firsthand or anything. But it's just this is so. It, it, it could go in the it could go in the category of maybe or rumor. But uh, you know, that's some of the talk that's going around anyway. And, but I like your solution of it. Is how do we cooperatively, well, how do we work together to solve this problem to make sure that whatever amount of this fertilizer that's out there in the world, in the U.S. right now, that it is passed to the people that need it, is shared? 
so that we can, because we're going to need the food that you are growing out there. Yep. We're definitely going to need it, particularly if this lasts a year or so. Well, you know, I've, I've been very, very proud of the farming profession all of my life. It's something I've always wanted to be. I never wanted to be anything else, really. Uh, but uh, it's just it's just one of those things that we've learned now, I think, through this. And that's why I say there's maybe some game-changer things going on. But what we've learned as a country is that we can, we, we can go ahead and watch the morning news from the anchor's living room. We can do that. We've, we, we've, we've done it on the the different uh, mm-hmm. uh, network shows that they have in the morning. That's a lot of times done from people staying at home. Late-night television is from the, you know, the late-night hosts are in their, their living room and their children running around, and it's it's fun. It, we, we learn we can do that. Uh, we learn we can get get along, and for some reason, uh, you know, we don't, ha- we don't absolutely have to have professional sports. It's fun to have it, but we can live without it. But we cannot live without our farmers. We've got to have the farmers being able to produce food. And it just tears me up when I hear stories about farmers having to dump, dump milk because they can't, because the restaurants aren't using it, you know, as much anymore. And so they don't have a market or people. I, I saw an example where a farmer in Florida was plowing down his squash because he couldn't find a home for it because the restaurants were closed. And I'm thinking that's, that's ridiculous. There are people going hungry. Yes. that be? And so, you know, if they would have marketing, if they'd have marketing cooperatives working with other marketing cooperatives, they could probably figure out where this food can go and, and get it there. And how to process it. They tell me like cheese was in big, huge blocks to go to a restaurant or to some other business where it's in smaller pieces to go to the to the family. Listen, we've got to leave. I really have enjoyed this very, very much. Uh, any other last thoughts for people? We only have about 30 seconds. You know, I would just say keep doing what you're doing. I really appreciate programs like yours. It's so, so in- informational and it really helps people understand. So thank you so much. Thank you for being on, for taking the time off the plow or the, whatever you're doing up there with your son. I also want to thank National Co-op Bank because they bought the equipment that I'm using now about two years ago so I could do this out in the anywhere I went. Now I'm, I'm, at, I'm in, my, <laughs> in my dining room <laughs> doing the show. Thank you, sir. It's All a pleasure. Right, thank you goodbye. Goodbye now. Everybody out there live this week cooperatively. We'll see you next Thursday. Your news talk station, 